come and I have a little bit better idea of how many people to plan for. All right. And in First Peter chapter number three, we are going to begin in verse number eight. It says these words, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear then, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer For doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed in the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. This is the Word of the Lord this morning. We again are looking at the idea of what it means to live godly lives, faithful lives, even in a world that is far from God. God's desire, plan for us, is that we as believers would be faithful to Him, faithful to His purposes, continuing to live in this world as a faithful witness and testimony to the goodness of God, even when the world is coming unglued. Last couple weeks we've been dealing with the idea of being faithful through a, a submission to different individuals, whether it is uh, government officials, whether it is unjust employers, or in Peter's case, masters of slaves that are holding people against their will, and yet the slave is to be faithful and to live a good life in front of them. And as we talked about last week, even husband and wife relationships. 
As an unbelieving wife, or, or a believing wife, I should say, lives with an unbelieving husband, she is to live a good and faithful life in front of him and show the glory and goodness of God. Today we take that a step further where we're not just focusing in on certain individuals, but rather speaking to all of us, no matter the situation we find ourselves in in life. And again, we find the reason for this faithfulness is because of what Christ has done. And that's what we're going to end up talking about this morning. The fact is, Christ has overcome. Christ is victorious. Christ rules and reigns over all. And as a result of His triumph on the cross, you and I can live a life of faithfulness. This is our reason. This is our purpose. This is why we do good, even if it seems to bring evil in our lives, because we know what Christ has done for us and the victory He has brought for us. And His victory is what challenges us and causes us to live a life of faithfulness in the world, even if we are in a place of persecution, and torture, and even if we suffer for doing good in this world. I'm thankful that we live in a country we do for all of its faults and all of its failures, all of the mistakes of America. All of us were able to drive. We came here in our cars. We probably took the same route we take every single time, unless you're one of those people that just likes trying to get yourself lost or whatever. We're parked outside. We didn't take our license plate off of our car so that nobody would know we were here freely without hindrance, without reservation. I'm thankful that we have that opportunity. How long will it last? How long will it go on? We don't know. Pray it goes on for our lifetime and our children's lifetime and grandchildren's lifetime. But we know that there are brothers and sisters around the world that do not have this luxury. They're being persecuted. I just read a news story. Over 1,200 Christians in the country of Nigeria have been killed this year for their faith in Christ. What are they to do? They are to live a faithful life before God. And we are too, even though we don't face that. Because who knows what tomorrow holds for us as believers. The question is, will we be faithful? So we get into this text and we notice three things about this section of Scripture. First of all, we notice the relationships that Christians should have with each other. Relationships Christians should have with each other. As I've said, we've looked at the relationships that Christians should have as citizens of a government, as slaves to a master, as spouses to an unbelieving partner. We've looked at these particular relationships, but now we see that Peter seems to shift his focus from specific people and just broadens it out to everyone. Probably because he realized, or maybe he realized, you know, I could do this thing all day and talk about how each different individual should react. And so he finally just bronzed it out. Look what he says there in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have five different things. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble 
mind. Finally, all of you, all of us as believers, no matter if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, no matter if you are your own boss or your boss is the most perfect person in the world, no matter if you live in a government that leaves you alone, the most libertarian society on earth, whatever you find yourself in as a, as a people, there is something here for you to learn. And that is this, all of you, this is how we should treat each other as believers, like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility. These are not just random virtues that Peter decides to pick, but rather they are virtues that radiate from one center and they all work together. And as we exhibit these things in our life, they reflect the grace and love and compassion of Jesus. As we as believers exhibit humility, as we exhibit sympathy and compassion towards each other, as we live like-minded towards each other, not having the same thought or being the same person or just being robots that all act the same, but rather a unity of heart and spirit in the church, we really stand out in a world that is so, so fractured. Divided. I mean, you go down to Lincoln Financial Field or MetLife Stadium. And you see 70,000, 80,000 people dressed in their blue shirts or their green shirts or whatever the case might be. And you see a unity for three hours because they're cheering on a team. But imagine if their team was replaced by a presidential candidate. How much bickering and fighting. All of those in green would, would, would all of a sudden turn on each other. What if it was over something or another? Some hot button issue in our society. Imagine how quickly those 80,000 people would turn against each other. See, this is not the way the church is to react. Or to act towards each other. The church should be a diverse community of young and old and rich and poor and black and white and all these different ethnicities and races joining together. And yet, despite our, our myriad of differences, there should be a unity of heart and mind above each other, about each other. And most of all, there should be real and genuine love for one another that is exhibited here. That you will find nowhere else. That's why Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. So let me ask you something. Can you look at the person next to you on the other side of the church or three rows behind you? Can you look at them and see that you can treat them with compassion, with sympathy, with humility? Can you be unified together with them and sing songs of worship and praise together with them? Yes, I know they're a lot different than you are. They're a lot younger. They're a lot older. They're of a different gender. They're in a different stage in life. Can we join together as a body and show this unity from grace, love, and compassion just Christ has towards us. We're living in very contentious times and even midst of a disease it is seen to 
moved on from being a disease to being something that's so political. And we all have differences of opinion. We all have different thoughts about this and that and the other. But what would it be like if we would lay those aside? Oh yeah, we can discuss them with each other. But if we don't agree, we don't change each other's mind, what if we would lay them aside and treat each other charitably, with love, respect, approach our relationship with a humble mind, knowing I may not have all of the answers in life, I may not be right, and maybe my brother or sister would see things in a little bit different way and could open my eyes. This is what Peter calls us to do and tells us to do. It says we as believers must have these characteristics. Having a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind about each other. And so he reminds us as a church, as a people, that this is how we should live. This is how we should treat each other. And then secondly, he also tells us how we should face suffering. How we should face Suffering. This is probably the focus of, of the rest of this section. How do we respond to suffering and being mistreated in this world? Notice what he says there in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called that you might obtain Blessing. You recognize those words? You probably would if you turn back to Matthew chapter 5. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says it this way. He says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Those are the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Bless them. Pray for them. Do good to those who mistreat you. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. And do not curse them. This is the calling of the Christian. Our job is to recognize that when people come against us, when people mock us and ridicule us and revile them, us, Turn against us simply because of who we are. Our job is not to get back at them. Our job is not to repay them. Our job is rather to treat them with respect, to pray for them, and to bless them. Teach our children this. over the years, I've had to grab one of our sons who's ready with anger to lash back at his brother and say, no, you can't do that. Why is it that we try that with our small children yet we treat one another the exact same way we tell our kids not to treat each other? Oh, I get it. He's five, he's six, he's seven years old. He can't really do a whole lot of harm. And, and if they get a little scrape, you know, and they hurt each other, no big deal. But, but, but what about us as adults? We, we see people who come against us. And we're ready to lash back at them instead of blessing and praying for them. Peter makes this point by quoting Psalm 34. 
Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16 are the words that Peter quotes here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, what must he do? He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. They said a quotation of Psalm 34 basically states what Peter is quoting here. But look at those words. If we want to love life, if we want to see good days, the best thing we can do is keep our tongue from evil. I wonder James taught us the tongue is so small and yet it does such great damage. It's like the rudder on a ship. Just a small little thing. And yet the small little rudder is able to take that aircraft carrier and steer it wherever it wants to go. Riding a seven or eight hundred thousand pound horse, however big they get. Not exactly the most equestrian guy in the world, but you're on top of that thing and yet in its in its mouth is one little sharp little bit that just turns that horse whichever way you want it to go. And that's what James says it is. With our tongue so small and yet we do so much damage. And yet Peter says in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My rock and my redeemer, let the words of my mouth, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sights. And yet we notice God's eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to the ones who do good, but He's against those who do evil. Blessing of God is always on those whose hearts are turned toward Him and that walk faithfully in the ways of God. Notice verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? Most part, Christians who do good, who follow the law, are upstanding citizens. We can live peaceable lives. Go about our business with no problems. How many of us, I probably shouldn't say this because confession's good for the soul, I know, but I shouldn't tell you my faults. How many of us hit the brakes when we see the police cruiser on the side of the road? How many of us get yelled at by our wives by rolling through a stop sign that's literally three feet from my house? That would be me if you don't know. <laughs> what would we do if we merely went the proper speed and followed the law? We wouldn't have this Instinct. Now I know it's it's probably instinctual. Look, I've done it before, and I've looked down and said, "Wait a second, I'm going the speed limit." But you understand the point that Peter is making that I'm trying to make to you. If you do good, if you do the right thing, usually we're allowed to live our lives in peace. That's why Paul said in First Timothy two, "Pray for your leaders." Why? So that we can live peaceable lives. We need to be praying that God would allow our government officials, 
that our government officials would leave us alone and let us worship God in the way that we see fit and live our lives in peace and in harmony. But notice verse 14, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, we come to church, we park where we're supposed to, we're not blocking traffic, we're not loud, we're not breaking noise ordinances in our community. We worship God the way we want to. But even if we're obeying the law, and the government was to surround us right now with a SWAT team coming and advancing, I don't think that's happened. I guess I should ask Kevin, double check the cameras. But if that happens, Peter says, we are blessed. We're blessed. That doesn't sound much like a blessing, right? I mean, you're, now you're wondering and you want to get up and go to the bathroom so you can go look outside and make sure we're not going to get busted by a SWAT team. But it's a blessing if we are persecuted for doing the right thing, for being righteous, for living a godly life, and yet persecution comes your way. It is a blessing from God. How is it a blessing to be thrown in jail? How is it a blessing to be fired from work because I want to make sure the books line up the right way and I'm not fudging the numbers like the boss wants me to? Sometimes it doesn't make sense, but God sees His eyes are on the righteous who see and are doing good and are doing right. God knows where you are. And look what He says there at the end of verse 14. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Don't lay awake at night worried, thinking that if I do something that is right, this is the end of it all. We've been in situations like that, haven't we? We've known that we have to do the right thing. We know the choice we have to make. We know the conversation we have to have. And a lot of times, if you're like me, I find myself awake at 2 o'clock in the morning just pondering this and thinking about this and I can't go back to sleep. And yet, yet Peter is telling me, don't. Don't do that. Trust in God. Do not worry about what is going to happen. Do good. Do what is right. And let God Take care of the rest. He says, do not fear, do not be afraid. Verse 15, but in your heart, but in your hearts, I should say, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How do I do good and not worry about getting in trouble even if I know I'm going to be persecuted. I do it by honoring Christ. I do it by sanctifying the Lord in our heart. By making Him number one in our lives. The heart refers to the mind as the core of one's feelings, thoughts, and volitions. It is the basic self. So Jesus must be sovereign Lord at the core of our life. Make Christ holy is to recognize and reverence His holiness in every area of your life. Every aspect of your life, when it is surrendered to Christ, 
is the best antidote to fear and turmoil and chaos is going on. If you know that Christ is number one in your life, that's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 tells him, I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't know what to do because I'm in jail and I know I might die in jail. And if I die, guess what? That's a good thing. And yet, yet I want to be here because I, I want to help you and I want to minister to you. Paul says, either way, I win. You think of your life like that? You think of doing good and doing right and losing everything as a result, as a good thing? I can't go to church. They might, they might arrest me. My boss might hear about it and he might fire me from my job. Peter says it's a blessing when Christ is first and foremost in your life. When Christ is number one in your life, and this is where so many of us fall apart because Christ is not first. Christ is not enough for us. Christ is not everything to us. And guess what we do? We're afraid. We're afraid that if President Trump is not reelected, it's all over. We're afraid if President Trump is reelected, it's all over. But when Christ is first and foremost, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. You know that no matter what happens, we're going to be just fine. We often hear this verse and we think we have to become the next Ravi Zacharias. Many of you know who that is. Famed apologist. Passed away last couple months from bone cancer. We think we have to become somebody like him and discuss the origins of the universe and you know quantum physics and all this air stuff. You're like, look, I can barely balance my checkbook, okay? I can't, I can't talk to you about quantum physics. I flunked out of biology, okay? And let's be honest, we need to study we need to apply the truth of the Word of God in our lives. And we need to be able to explain why I believe the Gospel is right. And that only comes as we use and engage our mind intellectually. Study, Paul told Timothy, to show yourself approved to God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed. But even if you're like me and you're not able to explain quantum physics to somebody, intelligent design and all this other stuff, why, why do you have this hope of Christ in your life? What has Christ done for you? Can you tell them, this is what I believe the Bible tells us and if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is why I have this hope. Or do you sit there and say, I don't know, I just you ought to come to church. That's all I can tell you. That's about as good as I can get. Well, Peter says, always ready to give an answer. But notice we must do it with gentleness and with respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As we stand for our faith, as we make our arguments, the superiority of the gospel and what Christ can do in our lives, we do it respectfully, gently. 
not seeking to destroy or bash or win, or, but rather to change hearts and minds. But we have to do it with a good conscience. We have to do it knowing that we are living our lives above reproach. You can't stand up and say that Christianity is the way and the answer for you if you're not willing to show the difference that Christ makes. We can stand here all day and we can say, look, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all together. But yet, you will not allow or talk to somebody that comes to church that's of a different race or ethnicity than we are. If we let them know they are not welcome here because of who they are, how can we say that the gospel is for everyone if we are not willing to show it? That's why Peter says, have a good conscience. I mentioned Ravi Zacharias who recently passed away and I, I saw a tribute written by David Limbaugh, if you don't know, he's brother of the talk show host, Rush Limbaugh. He's become a Christian in recent years and has actually written several books defending the Christian faith. And, and this is what David Limbaugh said. He said, unlike some, Ravi did not ignore the last part of Peter's teaching. He always approached doubters with grace. He said it is sheer joy to watch internet videos of his many question and answer sessions with university students. In every encounter, Ravi treated skeptics as if he would a lifelong friend whose eternal destiny was his driving concern. You could see God working in these exchanges which were never contentious and were always overflowing with good cheer. One hallmark of Ravi's ministry is his credo that when anyone asks a believer a question about the Christian faith, the believer must focus on the questioner as much as the question. He said, I have reminded myself, this is Ravi Zacharias, I have reminded myself over the years to never forget that behind every question is a questioner. Behind every questioner is a network of assumptions, heard struggles, and often prejudices. In other words, Ravi Zacharias understood that behind every person who wants to argue and debate and fight is a person with struggles, fears, questions, doubts. And what would it be like if we as a church would understand this thing? Because we don't see it, right? We think, oh, they're on the opposite political party. We have to destroy them. And yes, there are bad things in our society that we have to stand strongly against and defeat and say this is not the way God wants us to live. But yet, every person espousing that is a person that was created in the image of God and that God loves and that Jesus Christ died for. So many times in our contentious world, we forget this truth. Verse 17 sums it all up. It is better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will, then for doing evil. It is better 
If you go to your boss and your boss wants you to cheat on your work, it is better for you to go to him and say, I'm not going to be dishonest. And for him to fire you for not being dishonest than it is for you to be dishonest and do what he wants to. And he wind up firing you anyways. Look, if you're, if you're working for a boss that's like that, he's probably, probably going to find a reason to get rid of you anyways. You might as well accept the fact that he is and do the right thing. So we see the inner way we should interact with each other. We see how we should face suffering, but we need to keep in mind my last point, and that is this, Christ's victory. Christ's victory over sin and evil. Okay, and this is why I can say this is how we ought to live our life. This is why I say we should treat each other in this manner is because Christ has won the victory over sin and evil and Christ has triumphed. Look at verse 18 again. Christ also suffered once for sins, the unrighteous, or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered for sins. Christ died being righteous for us who are unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Christ is the one who gave his life so that we might have eternal life and he is victorious over all. And then what Peter says is probably one of the most debated and most or least understood passages in all the Bible. I was reading and studying on it this week and one commentary said there are 18 different theories of what Peter is talking about here. In these verses, I'm not going through all 18. I'm just going to give you what I think, all right? You can talk about it later. But notice what he says here in verse 19, in which he went and preached, or proclaimed rather, to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So what is going on here? Peter says, look, Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died in his flesh. He was made alive in his spirit. And while he was dead in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison because they did not obey God's word. When the ark was being prepared in the days of Noah, what I believe Peter is telling us is this. That there are angelic beings, specifically fallen angels, who have been imprisoned until the final judgment. Okay, we see this in Jude chapter, or yeah, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Jude talks about angelic beings being kept in prison. We understand that Satan is imprisoned in Revelation chapter 20 and then will be judged in his final way. These angels have been kept in prison because they disobeyed God. And when Peter died on the cross, he went in his spirit and he proclaimed to them his victory. He proclaimed to them that he had triumphed over death, hell, and the grave when he died on the cross for our sins. And he stands there and he tells them that he is the victor. He is alive. You see, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he was not telling us, I give up. 
No, He's telling us the job is done. The work is completed. The victory has been won. Christ has conquered. And He has won over all. And this is what Peter is telling us here, is that Christ went to these angelic beings while He was dead, during the time that He was in the grave, and He let them know, I have conquered over all. These angelic beings were warned while God was patiently waiting. We know it took Noah 120 years, and finally he and his family, eight in total, entered the ark. And what happened? Judgment came and fell upon the world except for these eight people. And then Peter says in verse 21, this ark, Noah's ark, is a sign, is a type of our baptism. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's saying here that just as God rescued Noah, so when you give your heart to Christ and you are baptized, you are assured of your salvation. With the heart one believes, Romans 10.10 is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is not telling you that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. We know that from the verse that I just quoted out of Romans 10.10. But the reason we have baptism as a church, the reason we practice baptism, and if you're here and you've given your heart to Christ, you've never been baptized, and you would like to, make sure you come and talk to me about it. We will set up a time for that to happen. But the reason we do it is because it reminds us of what Christ has done in our hearts. And this outward act of baptism is a reminder that God has saved us from the judgment that is to come just as Noah has been saved through the waters of the flood by the building of the ark. I confess to you, maybe I'm a bad husband, but I did not get up this morning and hug my wife and say, I'm so glad October 3rd, 1998 happened. If you don't know, that's the day we got married. Our wedding anniversary. We don't celebrate it every day because I don't have enough money to buy flowers and chocolate. Mainly chocolate. She don't care about the flowers, but the chocolate. We don't do that. But make no mistake about it, it affects and impacts everything I do in life. The reason why I get up on a Monday morning and and drag myself here to church after I walk away on Sunday thinking everybody hates me and I'm the dumbest person in the world. Nobody will ever come back. The reason I do is because that day changed my life. Then, you know, April 23rd and June 23rd and July 31st when our kids were born. When I go through my life and I make decisions. This is always in the back of my mind. And as we live our lives on earth, yeah, we don't, we don't think about, maybe you don't remember even the exact day. Maybe the certificate of your baptism is, is hidden somewhere and you're not even sure where it is. But yet I remind myself, I am not my own. I am Christ. Christ has saved me. Christ has forgiven me. I have been set free from my sins and I am His forever. How is this possible? It's possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the end of verse 21 says. And then look at verse 22. He has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And this is my point. This is what I want to drive home. Christ is one. Angelic powers are subject to Him. Nothing in this world, nothing in this universe, Paul said, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Height nor death, present, past, angels, trouble, tribulation, sword, nakedness, famine. Tell me, what is going to separate us as believers from what Christ has done in our lives? Now this pandemic is global. It's all over the world. Hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. But Christ is still on the throne. He's still alive. Yes, don't you see what's happening in our cities? I mean, they're, they're on fire. They're burning. People are shooting each other. yes. Christ is on the throne. He's alive. Politicians can't get in the same room with each other without screaming and yelling and fighting. Yes, Christ is alive. He's victorious. He's on the throne. My job is downsizing. They've realized we don't need this big office and we can have essential people work at home and the rest of us are gone. Christ is alive. He's on the throne. I took one of those tests, got that Q-tip stuck up my nose or whatever they do. If you take one, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm glad it's negative. Doctor said it's cancer, it's terminal. Guess what? Christ is on the throne. He is alive. He is victorious. Oh, that we as a church would understand that. But what I wouldn't give for us to to see some of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, as I mentioned, or China or other places that are facing far worse times than we are. And for us to understand what they are going through and for them to look at us and say, Christ is alive. He is victorious. He has overcome. This is what allows us to be faithful. Job sat there with nothing. Ten children lost them all. Lost millions of dollars in a freak storm. Lost any prospects of future in a crazy storm. Sat there and his whole body was so full of pain he wished he could get away. And yet he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he said later, I may die, but I know that in my flesh I will see God. Why? Because my Redeemer lives. He is alive. You and I need to grab this truth. We need to grab it. We need to hold on to it. We need to bury that deep within our hearts. Christ is alive. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because He lives, I know who holds the future? 
Life is worth living just because he lives. Amen. Let's pray this morning, shall we? You're here today and the truth is not in your heart. You need to make sure. You need to make sure you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ has forgiven you of your sins. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That needs to get deep into your heart and you need to know that. You say, you don't understand what I've done in the past. I've committed adultery. I've murdered. Guess what? Thousands of other people have throughout the course of time, probably millions. God has forgiven each and every one that's called upon Him. God will do it for you. I want to challenge you, though, as a church as well. I know things are contentious. I know things are crazy in our world. You know what you need to do the next time you feel discouraged? Well, you probably need to turn off your social media. You need to turn off your cable news. You need to pull out your Bible. And you know what you need to do? You need to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. You need to memorize it. You need to sink it within your heart and know nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You need to bury that deep within your soul until your whole outlook and disposition. Yes, I know the problems are still going to be there. Trust me. But you know what you will do? You will face them knowing Christ has overcome. He is defeated. He is alive. And He lives forever. If we would grab that truth in our life, it would change everything about us. So Heavenly Father, I pray that we would understand and recognize and realize and grab this truth. God, You are alive. You live forever. My hope is in You.